So welcome back to Cracks in Postmodernity. Today we have a very special guest who we've all been waiting for, Urban Hannon, who studies theology in Rome and who wrote a very interesting piece back in 2014 for First Things Magazine called Against Heterosexuality under the name Michael W. Hannon. Um, Urban, thank you for joining. Great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. So this piece, which you wrote in 2014, got a lot of attention. Um, we're going to break it down in a minute, but just tell us a little bit about the background, how this article came to be. Sure. Um, yeah, first, actually, I just want to say thanks for having me on the podcast. I actually, I have to admit, I had not heard of Cracks in Postmodernity before you reached out to me to ask me about doing an episode. But as soon as I started looking into what you do to this podcast, um, two episodes you'd recorded already, I knew both that this was something that would be a lot of fun to do, but also that we would become fast friends because I saw the list of your recent guests and saw, first of all, that my good friend, Potter Edmund Waldstein, who's a Cistercian monk over in Austria at Heiligenkreuz, had just been on to talk to you about Catholic integralism. Um, Abigail Favalli, who unfortunately is not my friend, I've never gotten to meet her. One day. One but day. I wish she was, yeah, one day. Um, was on, did a great episode with you. Not uh, entirely irrelevant to what we'll be talking about today, I don't think. And Abigail just came out with a book with Ignatius Press called The Genesis of Gender. Which everyone should read. Everyone should read. Stephen is thanked in the acknowledgement section, so there you go. Um, but fantastic book. I read it on a vacation last month, and I think it's the only time I can remember that I read a book on a vacation, and I finished reading it, and my mom picked it up and read it after me. So this is a great book that's pitched at a level, you know, Ignatius Press audience that actually brings a lot of the sort of intersection of um, traditional Catholic theology and human anthropology, philosophical anthropology, into conversation with um, gender studies, etc. So Abigail being on here also was a big boon to wanting me to come on. Mm -hmm. And then you had uh, Adam, a.k.a. Wafers, Wafers, on for like three episodes in a row or something not that long ago. A.k.a. Tradwave. Tradwave, one exactly. One of the of Tradwave. So he's a new friend through the podcast. He and I actually met up for breakfast here in New York a couple of weeks ago, and he gave me some of his Rated T for Trad stickers. Which everyone should buy. As well as um, a cassette tape with yes. a recording of Compline. If that, you have a cassette tape player, of which I don't, but it was no one a very sweet gesture, uh, and he's awesome. So that's it's a very great... decorative. If you can't play it, at least it looks nice. It's a conversation piece. There we go. So more good uh, cracks and postmodernity exactly. connections. And then finally, um, just maybe a month ago now, is that right? You had someone on the podcast who is not my friend, is not going to be my friend, and if he knew anything about me, would really, really not want to be my friend, but um, who has a lot to do with some of the things we're going to talk about, I think especially in the second half of what we chat about today, and that, of course, is Andre Asimon, the author of the novel version of Call Me By Your Name. I still can't believe that you got him to come on Maybe this podcast. Did he ever listen to another episode of this no, podcast? Definitely. If he did, he wouldn't have said yes. <laughs> But fantastic. Hey, Andre. He's not going to listen to this either. It's not. <laughs> um, yeah, so really appreciate you having me on. And I'm looking forward to talking about this essay I wrote today. So the essay, as Stephen mentioned here, that I'm going to be talking about revisiting a little bit on this episode today is called Against Heterosexuality, deliberately um, kind of a 
inflammatory name. Very. It's taken from a, a movement that was going on in France at the time, actually, Catholics United Against Heterosexuality, <laughs> um, which you might think is this sort of like radical leftist thing. Um, but it's actually saying that heterosexuality and homosexuality alike are really um, kind of false categories. They, at least the way that those terms were being really popularly used 10 years ago when I wrote this, um, I argued are just completely inadequate for understanding what they're supposed to explain. And they kind of put on airs and pretend to be these eternal types um, that man, for as long as man has been around, has always existed in these two um, sort of irreducible and um, absolutely distinct and the only two option um, kind of radical alternative kinds of those who are attracted to the opposite sex and those who are attracted to the same sex. And I looked at this and said, first of all, that has nothing to do with the Catholic tradition, but second of all, it also is just not really adequate even to explaining what's in front of us culturally today and I don't think these categories are going to be around for much longer anyway, at least in their current kind of um, iteration. So I don't want to take too much credit for this idea. Um, it's a little bit funny that this became like the piece that I'm now known for. And when people meet me, um, finally this year, actually, for the first time this year, someone came up to me and said, oh, my gosh, I read an article you wrote and it wasn't this article. I was so excited. <laughs> it was a piece about the liturgy and Christology. And I was just bracing myself because thousands of times someone has come up to me and said, oh my gosh, I've read this article you wrote, and it was against heterosexuality. And this was the most read piece on First Things for quite some time. Okay, yeah. So it became this very big sort of phenomenon of an article, um, which is funny for two reasons. One, this wasn't some like grand original idea of mine. I became the person who kind of wrote this thing up that had been a regular conversation in my group of friends for a really long time at that point, like all through college, this was the sort of thing we talked about. Um, and then getting out of college and into this sort of larger young adult Catholic space and realizing that not everyone was having these conversations or thinking about things this way. I thought, well, this is a voice that a point of view that ought to be um, sort of included in this larger dialogue. This was still pre Obergefell kind of in the midst of all of these marriage fights and so forth. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, I think this, the first time I can remember anyone talking about this actually was when I was still in college. I was with some friends on the Jersey Shore one time in the summer. And after several drinks one night, everyone was, you know, kind of trying to come up with the hottest take. And someone remarked, yeah, Ahmadinejad's right. There are no homosexuals in Iran. But that's because there aren't any anywhere, and there aren't any heterosexuals there either. And so we started talking about this, and talking about Freud and Foucault, and all these different people that we were reading on our various campuses. And so when I finally came to, to write this piece, I wrote some other things beforehand kind of on this topic too, but a little bit half-baked or less, um, and ended up first writing against heterosexuality to give as a talk at the Notre Dame Fall Conference, the Center for Ethics and Culture Conference back in 2013, and then revised it a little bit and submitted it to First Things, where I had some involvement back then. And I'm very grateful to Providence that I wrote this piece. I then immediately became a pilgrim for two and a half months on the Camino de Santiago, mostly hiding from the internet. Uh, and then a month after that, 
entered a monastery where I got to hide for five more years for many of the uh, the blow up surrounding this piece. So it became this, I don't know, sort of firestorm of an essay, I guess. It got just a ton of traffic from a lot of people who otherwise didn't have anything to do with first things. Um, and both from the left and the right, I got just a ton of pushback, mm-hmm. only a very small fraction of which I've ever read, to be honest, um, in part because... I didn't really want this to become this like long drawn out thing that I was going to debate for the rest of my life. Um, and in part because it just wasn't appropriate to what became my station in life pretty quickly there. Uh, the other reason I was going to say that it's a little bit ironic that this became, you know, my calling card or whatever is that I actually don't know all that much about this stuff, to be honest, like in terms of gender theory, queer theory, this sort of thing, this has like never been my academic area and is definitely not my academic area today. Uh, I'm now trying to become, uh, you know, a proper academic theologian. So I do research on the Eucharistic conversion and Christ's human knowledge and demonology and politics, like topics that uh, I don't have many occasions to cite Foucault for actually demonology and politics. Oh, I probably yeah, could have pulled him in sense. some more, but um, yeah, it, it's something that every work of gender theory I've ever read, basically, besides Abigail's new book, maybe, uh, is the stuff that I cited in this essay and the kind of follow-ups to this essay. So, um, yeah, it's something I still believe in very much and something that I actually think has aged very well. I think it's become almost kind of taken for granted in a lot of Catholic circles today in a way that just was not true when it came out at all. Uh, And like a lot of things that we talked about back then that seemed really radical at the time, friends of mine who talked a lot about um, communitarianism or other people talking about, um, you know, kind of the importance of thinking outside the left-right dichotomy in America and this kind of thing that now is cliche. At the time, it was not cliche. And this was another thing like that back then. So anyway, I had not had many occasions to revisit this in the meantime. I did one quick follow-up at First Things before I entered the monastery called Against Obsessive Sexuality, which was just an online piece. It was kind of a reply to my critics. Um, It was probably not great. It certainly is not a great title. Um, And then I did a podcast one time when I was still a religious back in New York on a family visit with First Things called Against Gender. And then I did one follow-up piece in the very first issue of The Lamp magazine, um, which is a great publication that I'm proud to be involved with still. Um, But that was a piece called How to Be a Radical, which had started as a lecture that I gave here in New York at Columbia back in 2016. Um, And then, like I said, published there in the debut issue of The Lamp. So that wasn't just about sexuality stuff, but included that and also kind of zoomed out to say, like, what is this move? that I'm making and arguing against quote-unquote sexual orientation and how is that part of a larger pattern of how Catholics need to engage with contemporary political and cultural debates. So let's get into what, I mean, what you're talking about in the beginning is the genesis of this whole category of sexual orientation, which a lot of people do, you know, refer to Foucault and history of sexuality. And he talks about, you know, in the like i guess the manual tradition of the church and you know how priests were trained to hear confessions that like sodomite was not a category of person but it was 
but type of sin that people are associated with based on their actions, not based on their subjective desires, their inclinations. Yep. And he traces the line up into, you know, 1800s when you see the pathologization, the medicalization of the category. Um, but he understands it to be, again, this kind of social construct. So say a little bit about your reading of Foucault and how you kind of take this very post-structuralist, post-modern thinker into a traditional Catholic context. Yeah. Um, so here I'll, I'll control F through my old essay real quick and look at, there's a paragraph in Foucault's History of Sexuality, Volume 1, that I think is really helpful for this. So this is what Michel Foucault writes. He says, the 19th century homosexual became a personage, a type of life, a morphology. Nothing that went into the homosexual's total composition was unaffected by his sexuality. It was everywhere present in him at the root of all his actions because it was their insidious and indefinitely active principle. Um, yeah, he says... Homosexuality appeared as one of the forms of sexuality when it was transposed from the practice of sodomy onto a kind of interior androgyny, a hermaphrodism of the soul. The sodomite had been a temporary aberration. The homosexual was now a species. And so, yeah, as you say, Foucault's point is that historically, actually, well, actually, I should say, when I say Foucault's point, there are a lot of people out there that know a lot more about Foucault than I do. And that's one of the things I heard from the left in response to this essay a lot was like, Foucault is more complicated than you present him as neat. Like, I'm sure that's true. My, my use of Foucault is for a very limited, limited purpose of saying, hey, Catholics who already agree with each other about the church's teachings on sexual morality, let's reevaluate our relationship to these categories of sexual orientation. And let's pay attention to some of the things that the radical left has figured out about the kind of pedigree of these categories. Um, so I don't pretend, pretend to, you know, be the definitive word on Foucault, but what Foucault is talking about here at least is that previously sodomy had operated basically like any other sin. It, yes, is classified as one of the sins against nature. Um, St. Thomas Aquinas says, uh, question in the Summa Theologiae, in the Secunda Secundae. And it's look, one of the, um, what do we call it, sins crying out to heaven for Yeah, vengeance. crying out to heaven for vengeance, exactly. In addition to withholding pay from workers. This is true. Both pretty bad. Indeed, indeed. Um, so yeah, it's something where I certainly don't mean to say this sin isn't a big deal. That was definitely not the point. I think anyone who read the essay would have to know that wasn't the point of what I'd written. But what I did want to say is that even though this sin is a very big deal in terms of its gravity, it's not categorically different than other sins. We don't have a different relationship, or at least like man in himself does not have a different relationship to it than he does to any other violation against chastity, but also to any other violation of any of the other commandments. Um, that the really unprecedented, bizarre thing about sexual orientation is that it takes this particular sin and, as Foucault says, turns it from being a juridical category into a kind of essential anthropological category where you create a species of this. And there's now a kind of person who is a heterosexual or a kind of person who is a homosexual. And that's just what they are. And that's the starting point. And then you can debate like what the morality ought to be. And I trace some of this history in the piece, but originally when 
homosexuality was invented in the 19th century, it was supposed to be a bad thing. It was supposed to be, here's a psychological category of those abnormal and therefore immoral freaks. And this was done by people who wanted to commit sins against chastity with the opposite sex, but still wanted to be able to hold themselves up as quote-unquote normal. And so it was all a way of devising a system that let people give into lust, give into vicious, unchaste desires, but still have someone to scapegoat. And so it was the sodomites, those, and specifically I should say those who sodomized people of the same sex, because sodomy is a sin that one can absolutely commit with a member of the opposite sex too. Um, anything that is inherently sterile um, and arousing the other to the procreative act uh, is an instance of sodomy. Um, that this became a way for a lot of um, European gentlemen of the 19th century to get away with the kinds of lustful sins they wanted to commit while sort of turning into not just a category of sinners, which is true, but a category of like social psychological lepers, anyone who not just committed these acts, but anyone who was intrinsically ordered to fulfillment only by this kind of act or something like this. And then what happened over time, and Foucault traces this too, but we can also just see it even since Foucault's death, uh, and frankly, even since I wrote this article 10 years ago or nine years ago, um, what's happened since is that the sort of gag reflex here against same-sex sexual relations, because it was always unprincipled, because there was no actual good, sound reason why opposite sex unchastity should be fine, but same-sex unchastity should be freakish and wicked and um, sort of worthy of ridicule, that just doesn't make sense. So now the gag reflex is gone, um, and society no longer distinguishes these things. And obviously that's come across in the courts and in the laws we have today, and even last week, a bunch of Republican senators and uh, the lovely Dr. Oz, who would like to count himself among their number in Congress. Um, that was sarcasm, in case that doesn't come across in the podcast. Um, have banded together as the GOP to try to enshrine in law the um, results of all these Supreme Court cases and so forth, enshrining quote-unquote gay marriage too. Um, basically, the 19th century invention of homosexuality no longer serves its purpose because now anything you want to do against the Sixth Commandment is supposed to be accepted as just an expression of who you are. Um, and yeah, I think that's really unfortunate. It's a really bad setup for understanding the truth about our nature as men and women. Um, but especially for those who are Catholic and are raised in the faith, it's a really bad starting point for understanding or receiving what the church has to tell us about sexual morality. Because if you thought from the beginning, there are two kinds of people. There are straight people and gay people, essentially, absolutely, from all time. And then the church's teaching is what it is. You'd think this is arbitrary, this is hateful, this doesn't work for this whole category of people who are damned to be unfulfilled by it. Then you've got a lot of people who end up having this kind of cognitive dissonance or resolving cognitive dissidence by just leaving the faith or demanding for church teaching to change or something. Whereas if you start by saying these categories are fake, or at least 
their claims to being absolute, mm-hmm. essential, timeless um, sort of distinctions between different kinds of people are fake. And instead, what you have are just men and women, all of us, exactly as we are, with all sorts of temptations to all sorts of things all the time because we're fallen and broken. And you treat this temptation like you treat every other serious temptation, then that's a much better starting point to say, what does the church teach? Why does she teach it? And what's the way to happiness by taking very seriously the things that our God has revealed to us about how to live as the men and women that we are? Yeah, so I think there's there's a lot of things to break down from this kind of Foucauldian narrative. I mean, first, we take it for granted at this point that these categories are so absolute that they are essential, that they define the person. And there's no sense of a... The historical trajectory of these ideas like we just we hear these categories we're taught at least nowadays people are taught from a young age that this is how it is um but no one really dares to ask like okay but where did it come from it's a fairly recent category so why do we take it to be absolute sure it could be one way of defining sexuality it could be you know one narrative but why do you think we've become so or our societies become so essentialist like why do we cling on to these categories blindly without asking like okay well maybe they're arbitrary maybe they're you know not essential so i do have an answer for you because i think this was something that i thought about a lot at the time i wrote the piece but i do also want to push back against you too mm-hmm. because my sense actually today in the year of our lord 2022 is that these aren't really being taken for granted so much anymore, either in the culture or in the church. Um, but before I come to that, uh, let's revisit 2014. Mm-hmm. At the time, back then, I think there's a few reasons why these seemed so absolute. One is that, in fact, sociologically, it had kind of been the case that people who chose to I mean, I'll speak the church's language, chose to violate the Sixth Commandment with members of their own sex, that meant belonging sociologically to a particular subgroup. And that meant, at least officially, committing to that sort of sin exclusively in the sexual realm. Mm -hmm. That, yeah, you had quote-unquote bisexuals, but what was the line, right? Uh, a woman who claims to be bisexual is straight and a man who claims to be bisexual is gay. And I'll sort of tell you that for real in another few months. Um, put a pen in that. I have an anecdote about that in a minute when I talk about how this has aged. But back in 2014, I think we can't underestimate how important the political side of this was. Um, and a lot of people back then were writing really intelligently about this. My friend Patrick Deneen at Notre Dame is yes. one person whose work on this I really, really appreciated at the time. I don't think I cite him in this piece. In fact, I think I don't cite him on this in the piece because uh, the thing I'm thinking of came out later than this. But he had a great essay showing that all of the, quote, gay marriage litigation was actually about defending one percenters' um, sort of elite cultural status. And in fact, in the case of Windsor, the the facts on the ground as a backdrop to that Supreme Court case were a couple of elderly millionaire, multimillionaire, more um, women who'd been in a sexual relationship for decades who were trying to avoid the estate tax. Like that's what this case was about. So 
Um, I think the political side of this can't be underestimated. Until Obergefell happened, and I was already in the monastery when Obergefell happened, we actually had ordinations that very day, uh, which was crazy. But until that happened, I think you needed these categories, by you, I mean the gay rights movement, needed these categories to appear completely essential because they wanted the civil rights era language and ethos to surround their movement. And unless being gay was as real and unavoidable and central a thing to just who you were as a person as being black or being Jewish, unless you could carry on that race, religion, etc., um, sort of, uh, you know, discrimination, hate crime kind of aura, um, you weren't going to be able to push these Supreme Court cases through in the way that you ultimately were able to, both in terms of changing the overall public opinion around it, but also, which is a complicated thing that's interrelated with that, changing the opinions of the justices on these various courts. Um, so that's one thing. Um, is the political and that I'd already mentioned the kind of sociological fact that it was the case for many decades that this was a sort of identity people adopted. And so it made sense if you were going to absent yourself in a certain way from polite society and enter into this sort of stonewall um, yeah. community and then that looked different in the decades that followed, but was yeah. always a sort of absolute identity that you adopted for yourself and said, I belong to that group. Um, I think those things come together to make this a pretty powerful force in making people think this is just how it goes. My sense though, is that today it doesn't really work that way. And it, it hasn't been that long since I wrote this, but a lot's happened in the meantime. And I made a lot of these predictions that, I mean, I'm, I'm curious to hear your perspective on this because maybe I'm a bad judge in the case of my own predictions, but I read this piece now and I think it's wild that this was so controversial then because now this is just, all come to pass. Um, one thing I think of, for example, is that Newsweek story a few months back that got a lot of airtime about how for Gen Z, something like 40% of that generation is identifying as not straight or not straightforwardly straight. Yeah. And everyone freaked out about this. It was like, that number is so high. It must be fake. It must be inflated, whatever. But you've been a high school teacher. I've been a high school teacher. My interactions with that generation and having you know them talk to me in that context and in being uh, a kind of catechist at different summer camps to high school kids and so forth is that they don't have the same relationship to these categories of sexual orientation that I think were had a decade or more ago, uh, certainly much more than a decade ago now that I was in high school. Um, but what's interesting to me is that that alleged 40% or 40% plus of Zoomers who claim to be not straight, what that would have meant in 2014 is that, okay, 40% of them claim to be gay. And today that's not true. Mm -hmm. They don't think that there's these two options, gay and straight, with maybe this like small little transitional middle ground of bisexual. They first of all think there's a ton of things on offer, and this obviously gets combined with the trans movement and the whole sort of gender question in addition to the sexual orientation question, 
which is a whole complicated um, sort of dynamic, and it's not obvious that these things actually go together at all. In fact, they've got you know various assumptions that contradict each other. But um, I think the position these kids are in today is to look at all of this and say, look, none of that's adequate to my experience. And I'll give just two anecdotes. I won't name who these people are, but twice um, in connections to my family in the past few years, we've had people come home at, not to my house, but uh, to houses of people we know um, at Thanksgiving during college. Two different cases of boys who came home their freshman or sophomore year of college at Thanksgiving and told their families, I'm bisexual. <laughs> and as I say, what that would have meant when I was in college, if at Thanksgiving you told your family you were bisexual, that was preparing them for over Christmas when you told them yep. you were homosexual. It was like an easing them into, you know, this coming out of the closet moment kind of thing. What this meant in these cases, by Christmas, one of these men had a girlfriend. They're now married a few years later. Look at that. For the other one, he went on to, date might be a generous word, um, but he went on to be with many women over the course of the next couple of years. Well, that is also... Oh. Of this story, or oh, at least that's right. he, he no longer knows what his gender is. But it was, at any rate, not a situation of, um, you know, I, I now am going to be Carson Cressley from Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, <laughs> circa 2003 or whatever that show was a thing. Um, and instead became this very different thing of, I just don't experience myself and my desires and so forth is fitting into these neat category boxes anymore. So no question the language is still there. Like I don't mean to give the impression that I think high schoolers and college students today are not saying gay and straight or finding meaning in those terms or sometimes finding solidarity with others who adopt the same one they do or whatever. But I do think that both because the political landscape has changed so much in regard to these things, some of which is all the victories being won for gay marriage, some of which is the trans movement coming in as the next thing and disrupting or complicating some of this in different ways, and some of which is just the sort of sociological landscape changing where now I think there's no expectation today that a guy who's with men is only ever going to be with men. Like, that's just not usually or often... Um, I won't say how this works. I, I don't know how this works for them, but at least is not presented as this is all I will ever be. Um, because that itself, I talk about this in the piece too, and why I predicted that this was all on the way out, but that itself is restrictive in a way that I don't think the libertine gay rights movement wants. They needed it for a while to be able to say, this is us and we're oppressed and treat us equally and so forth. But once they got that, what they actually want, or at least what the movers and shakers behind the movement want, is not rigid identity categories that give them a whole different, very demanding, specific sexual ethic, but rather is to unmake all of this in a radical way so that everyone can, quote unquote, follow his heart and do whatever he wants on any given day. Um, and so, I don't know, I think that while the names are still with us, the categories aren't in the same way. Okay, so before I respond to the the way that the ties have changed over the last nine years, first, just a couple comments on the whole essentialism and the Foucault narrative. 
Um, when I hear people who are super ardent about pro LGBT queer rights, etc., like sometimes I wonder, like, why is there this lack of curiosity about where these categories come from? Like, why do we blindly accept it? I think part of it is a problem of intellectual capacity. I think some people are incapable nowadays because of the dumbing down, whether whether it's the school systems, whether it's TikTok, whatever. Um, like people are capable of saying, like, wait, where do certain ideas come from? What are the implications of this? Um, most people, I mean, most normal people can't pick up Foucault. I mean, he's impossible. But you can at least Wikipedia search, what is the genesis of this category? Most people don't think to do that. But it's also a problem of power, like cultural power. Like the fact that these gay rights lobby groups have spent so much money to control the narrative, like, I think that's part of the reason why people don't even think to ask the question because there is so much control over the questions we can ask, the things we can read. Also um, very Foucauldian. Yeah. The yeah. power dynamics of politics. Yeah, I mean, that we don't see. He, he knew what he was talking about. He may have been insane, but um, <laughs> but no, like there's a problem of power, but also I think people are becoming stupid who can't think about the things that they're told anymore, but also aren't allowed to. Um, but then the fact that like there are still. Well, I don't know. Like, I especially see this, the role of power when it comes to, like, when you look at Stonewall, like, pre-Stonewall, and I, like, I say this a lot, I write about this a lot, like, people understood that sodomy was a deviant behavior, that it wasn't natural because it didn't result in childbirth, and a lot of people were happy about that, like, that was a goal to transgress these social I mean, whether you're transgressing nature for like the sake of blasphemy, blaspheming against the creator, or to blaspheme against polite society, like people understood this is not normal, and nor should it become normal. People enjoyed that transgressive kind of identity. But you see, again, like the people who were running the gay rights lobby after Stonewall realized that if they wanted to have more of a bourgeois, bourgeois kind of privileges, that they would need to change the narrative. They would have to make it normal. Because if you're going to be a deviant, people are going to give you a hard time. You're not going to have all these kinds of comfortable rights that straight couples have. Um, but the other thing that I think about is the fact that, like, outside of the U.S., I don't see this sexual orientation essentialism as strongly. Like, for yeah, example, I totally agree with yeah, that. Yeah, like, if you look at Southern Europe, from what I understand, like, most Southern Europeans, Mediterranean people, understand, like, if you're sodomizing other people, then that makes you gay. It's the action. You know, as you know, classically speaking, that's how it's always been. And if you have inclinations, you have desires, but don't act on them, it's like, okay, well, maybe, you know, you're a little weird, maybe you have some emotional whatever, but that doesn't categorize you. In the U.S., it's like, as soon as you hint that you have a little bit of a desire, this is who you truly are, and you can't deny it anymore. Like, you must tell everyone that this is who I am. It's like... That's such an American kind of construal of desire and identity. Yeah, I totally agree with that. So as as you mentioned earlier, I live over in Rome right now. I've been living in Italy for a year. I'll be there for another year. Uh, actually, fly back tomorrow. Um, but in Europe, things are very different in this regard. And there's people who could speak more intelligently um, and kind of penetratingly about the reason for this than I can. But one thing that's true there is, and this is cliche at this point for sure, but they just have a much deeper um, kind of set of social bonds and the cultural fabric there 
Um, Social bonds, but also aesthetic sensibility, I would say, too. Yes, I agree with that. I agree with that. Um, But here, I think that America is just such a, we can say, individualist place, or philosophically speaking. But actually, I think that the more relevant point, which is the other side of that, America is just a much lonelier place. The anxiety is much worse. And you, sorry, you see that in the language of Obergefell because there's that quote from, was it Kennedy, saying that um, marriage responds to this universal fear that, you know, you're alone and have no one to call out to. Yeah, I I have the line right here because I quoted it in that lamp piece. Uh, Yeah, you provided it almost verbatim. Actually, I don't need to reread this. marriage Marriage responds to the universal fear that a lonely person might call out only to find no one there. And I commented in, in How to Be a Radical in the Lamp, granted, that's a really bad philosophy of marriage, but it's a good confession of a deep human fear that if we're man enough to admit it, all of us have known. And I, I really do think that in America, that's much more pronounced than it is abroad. Um, we are so much lonelier. And that's the dislocation from the place that we're from, or we may not be from a place because our families were from different places and have moved and all these things. And so, especially now our social lives have shifted so online and become so abstracted from just everyday, normal, day-to-day life and the things of nature in a strong sense that, yeah, it's not surprising to me that um, ideas become reality here in a way that they don't there because you need it for security, for psychological security. You've got to take refuge in something you can grapple with, understand, and control. Um, But I think that has a lot more to do with anxiety and insecurity than it does with lust, actually. Um, And obviously, I don't say that at all by way of criticizing people or feeling anxiety if you're a millennial or a zoomer living in america and you don't deal with anxiety like you're the one who probably needs to be psychologically evaluated it was the walker percy thing right of the only sane response to our bad world is madness yep. the same person is crazy or an idiot um it's another foucauldian thing and uh madness and civil or whatever it's called yeah um Sorry, something you were saying just a minute ago made me think of this essay that a confer of mine had sent me several years ago that unfortunately I see I now don't have access to oh, because of the paywall does that to you. at The Spectator. You can but sign up for free. but I could, but I won't bother doing that on, the, uh, on air at this podcast. We love but, The Spectator, though. But this is a really interesting piece written by a guy who was involved at Stonewall oh, wow. uh, and is still, like, has not had any conversion of any sort from that, but who wrote this interesting piece back in 2019. His name's Chadwick Moore, and the piece is called This Pride, Let's Celebrate Shame. So really recommend this essay just from the point of view of sort of a know-your-enemy thing, but also this is what I'm talking about in terms of his point is basically, quote-unquote, pride today has become this non-deviant thing, this, like, mainstream thing that's undergone a hostile takeover by Democrats, corporations, quote-unquote, Marxists, and radical identitarians. And that's not what we were about at Stonewall, and this movement has been betrayed, basically. Uh, now, obviously, I'm not fighting for him to be in control of the levers of power, but I think it speaks to the fact that this thing has been co-opted and tamed in a big way and 
the deviancy point is important because, I mean, you looked at the like quote unquote conservative cases for same sex marriage back in the day. The whole point was, oh, this will be so great. We get gay marriage. And then they too will be just like bougie, suburban, whatever. Um, and there's something, you know, perverse about that. There's also something just sort of dishonest about it that is less, I think, revealing than the, um, the radical, um, deliberately um, bucking of bourgeois norms, et cetera, that had gone into this movement for so many decades. Yeah, so to quote somebody who lived down the street from where we are right now, we have all known the law of loneliness, and the mm -hmm. only solution comes with love, and love comes from community, which we don't have in the U.S. Absolutely. Um, Dorothy was right about yeah. that and many other things. Um, so for, for readers who did not pick up on Stephen's excellent solution, <laughs> uh, Dorothy Day's original Catholic worker house is over on First Street between First and Second Avenues, yeah. uh, which is about a, a five-minute walk from where Stephen and I are sitting right now down but, here in Lower Manhattan. Which house was on Mott Street, which we're basically almost on right now? Yeah. Um, Something was at Mott. I don't know. But she would go to Precious Blood. She would. She would. She would go to Precious Blood. She would also. Her actual parish has since closed. It's called Nativity, and it yes. is the ugliest thing in the world. Now covered in graffiti, which is sad. It's been deconsecrated. But actually, to be honest, the building is so bad that it looks very natural with graffiti all over it. They should do a graffiti of her, like they did of Pope Francis at the cupcake shop. Yeah, there you go. We need more. Uh, yeah, more Catholic spray paint yeah. in the neighborhood. But no, uh, Dorothy Day is. Really, really wonderful, and the long loneliness is. Where did I quote that? I don't know if it's in one of these pieces. Um, but the the part, you know, in a movie when they work the title of the movie into the movie, mm -hmm. it's always very exciting. Um, in the long loneliness, Dorothy Day has the line that the title is taken from, yep. where she says, "We've all known the long loneliness," um, and I think that's that's what I'm really recommending. In addition to the um, sort of intellectual piece of this, of let's tear down this stupid construct of sexual orientation the the more important pastoral point is let's love each other out of this long loneliness yes. because until Not you can to do erase that, it but coming from this place of poverty ultimately absolutely yeah. um, and i would just add a side note everyone should read her diaries the duty of delight she has a lot of very interesting things to say about sexuality i mean most people associate her with you know service to the poor but she, she says a lot about like in the 60s and 70s when hippies with their free love started to move into the Catholic worker and how like she was really challenged by what they're saying about the sexual revolution. But she has one section where she talks about experiencing attraction to a, another girl, a classmate when she was younger mm -hmm. and how she recognized like first it's normal to find the same sex to be beautiful because objectively, ontologically, humanity is beautiful but that as you mature you understand how to how to express that recognition of the beauty of the, the same sex it's not through sex but again that intuition is a correct one um, so people should read that uh, i'm talking we're good all right but yeah to respond to what you're saying about how times have changed since 2014 and the fluidity um yeah so i would say this yeah, like 
these categories, because they're not rooted in any ontological truth, like they're not sustainable. Of course, they're going to break down at some point. And yeah, we're starting to see a lot more young people identifying with these more fluid, um, ambiguous categories like non-binary, genderqueer, or you know, some kind of version of being bisexual. But I would also say people are still very attached to having some type of identity marker, some kind of category, even if it's not simple gay or straight. And again, especially in the American context where there aren't any real substantial identity markers available to us anymore. Um, Yeah, the categories may not be as fixed, but there is this real sense of attachment. Like I must identify myself as non-binary or different in some way. Um, uh, That's what I'm observing. Yeah, I don't disagree with that at all. Um, So I think of someone like Adrian Vermeule talking about the liturgies of liberalism and again, the sort of um, political powers that are behind some of this. But I do think in America, we've been taught that, you know, the advance of humanity of civilization, of culture, of justice, is this advance both in um, the importance and power and freedom of self-expression and realization and in the sort of overcoming of stale, restrictive, old orthodoxies that oppressed some marginalized group um, or underclass or whatever, And when we've run out of things to actually apply that to, we start making up new ones. And significantly, again, this goes to um, things that Patrick Demean and others have pointed out, it's never actually the holding up of any group that would be a threat to our current elite ruling class. It's always something that can be comfortably subsumed into um, sort of, you know, globally capitalism and a liberal cultural... um, set of customs and what that's meant today is expanding the sexual orientation categories by a ton and then also bringing that into the realm of gender where now not just gay and straight are insufficient but male and female are insufficient and all of it is an attempt to do two things I think one find the group that I can belong to, like find the thing that is most specifically truest to me and who I am that I can put this label on myself so that I might join with others and be seen and recognized and affirmed and find commonality. And two, um, let the kind of propaganda machine continue of look at the great advances we have against our backward forebears. Um, And I think both of those things are going on today and something that you've pointed out on this show multiple times is that the attempt to find community in these sort of abstract category communities the quote-unquote gay community it's never going to actually satisfy but it expresses a longing for something that's very real um there's a couple as long as we're shouting out different things that people might be interested in reading my friend phil jeffrey who was a columbia student a generation i mean a college generation four or five years after me um, so we didn't overlap there we didn't know each other back then but he was writing about what was going on in morningside heights in the columbia neighborhood on campus there um, in the years after i had graduated so in this 
probably like 2013 to 2017 period, whatever. Um, this was something he drew a lot of attention to that suddenly all of these things that previously had been about individualism and about um, individual expression really, and, you know, the kind of um, lifestyle liberalism, like uh, select the thing that is going to make me individually happiest, gave way to these much more um, social, communal um, sort of expressions of this, where now the progressive social mores were framed in terms of belonging to groups. Um, and I think all of this, again, springs from that, or so much of this at least, springs from that anxiety and loneliness and wanting something to belong to there. So I'm not surprised that categories have stuck around. And I don't think categories as such are going anywhere. But I do think that, I don't know if this is the best way to frame this, but the gloves are off a little bit more or a lot more than they were a decade ago. That 10 years ago, it seemed like everyone agreed there were these two kinds of people, homosexual, heterosexual. And then on that common ground, you debated about sexual morality or the church's teaching or the gay rights movement or whatever. Today, I think all of that has been thrown into um, contention in such a way that now it's clear that the different competing traditions here are really competing traditions. Look, I'm a McIntyrean at heart, um, and I think always will be. And I think what's clearer today than it was then is that there is no neutrality, that all of this is up for debate and that the Catholic tradition is a full tradition. It's a radical alternative, a complete other worldview than what's on offer today. But I think it's really good that we're at that place, that when people now are offered the opportunity to convert to Catholicism, um, that this is a wholesale conversion. Jay Budashevsky down at UT Austin, great natural law thinker down there, used to say that part of the reason that the church's moral teachings are such a bitter pill to swallow is that we're not longing for a pill. We're longing for a meal. We need the entire thing. We need the whole context because it all is of a piece. And I think that today it's so much better for us that when people come to the church, they're not coming to the church to say, Everything I thought before was true, but now I'm adding the crucifix to that. They're coming because they are so unsatisfied, maybe intellectually unsatisfied, but more than that, existentially unsatisfied with what is on offer to them in the world, in the culture, in the sacrum today. And they want the city of God. Um, and I think that this is just one, you know, small little metric of that, of what's going on with um, sexual orientation language and the gender movement and all this sort of thing, but as part of a larger story about how the alternatives have become much more stark. Yeah, so, no, but I do want to comment on the fact that you're drawing this interesting parallel between, you know, a traditional Catholic metaphysic worldview and post-structuralist queer theory. And, you know, a lot of people talk now about this horseshoe that we see between these more traditional worldviews and the postmodern one. And, you know, I've written a lot about this, especially in relation to, like, recent authors like Andrea Longchu, who wrote Females. Um, but there's another philosopher that I mention a lot, Wayne Seahooth. I'm going to read this quote. Um, 
It's very relevant. So he says, postmodernist theories of the social self have not explicitly acknowledged the religious implications of what they are about. But if you read them closely, you will see that more and more of them are talking about the human mystery in terms that resemble those of the subtlest traditional theologies. So what you see here is that a lot of these queer theorists, again, postmodern thinkers, are reacting to these very positivistic enlightenment categories, which we see, you know, the whole concept of sexual orientation is coming from this enlightenment positivistic worldview that medicalizes the condition, we can say. Um, but no, in the same way, like the church would critique the enlightenment's lack of mystery, lack of sense of otherness, um, or we could even say of queerness, that which is beyond the normal, the natural realm. Um, so even though Foucault's lifestyle and a lot of his beliefs are very much against the church, like we see that there is some convergence. Um, but unfortunately, like the mainstream dialogue or rhetoric that we see within the church tends to overlook this, like whether it's people on the left who are, you know, promoting like, hey, LGBTQ ministries, welcoming, or even the more conservative ones that are like, oh, don't say gay, that's against us, like, you know, heterosexuality is normative. Um, why do you think that, I mean, I think times have changed since you wrote this article, like this kind of, um, this kind of discourse is a little bit more common, but I don't see it, at least on a pastoral level. Why is there... Why is there a kind of lack of reckoning with that that horseshoe, that convergence? You mean to say that the church is lagging years behind no, in being able to talk to the culture? No. Wow. That's that's new. That's a new problem. Um, no. Uh, <laughs> fortunately, uh, nothing about that is surprising. And that was sort of the motivation for my piece, right? If you read it, it's written to fellow Catholics or at least fellow Christians and begging them, like, actually do read the signs of the times, like these times, not the late 90s and early aughts, yeah. like what's actually going on? Because everything's still being framed in terms that I think Gen Z um, and our millennial compatriots just really, really can't relate to very well at all. Um, and that's not surprising. But <laughs> yeah, I could give other examples of where I think that's happened in the church's popular presentation of things in recent years, but I will hold my tongue. Um, but yeah, I think that is unfortunate and that it actually would be a great thing for the church, both because, you know, in terms of pastorally reaching out to those who need this most, you owe it to people to be able to speak to the circumstances in which they actually find themselves. But also because, as I've pointed out already, this is better for us. The church's sexual morality makes a whole lot more sense when you throw these things out and say, hey, let's start over. Let's not look at this from this stupid enlightenment, post-enlightenment, 19th century, rationalist, psychologized perspective. Let's look at this from a perspective that is simultaneously more essentialist and also more flexible and open to the postmodern. Because I think that combination is so important, but it's also important that you put them in the right places. Because what the church ought to be doing is looking at the reality of man and woman as the most obvious thing in the world. That's not up for debate. That's not to be anything but taken for granted. And this is one of the things Abigail Favalli is so great about in the Genesis of Gender, is, look, you're a man because you are the kind of human being who procreates in another. 
and you are a woman because you are the kind of human being who can bear new human life within yourself. Like you may or may not ever actually do that. In fact, you may or may not be able to do that for a whole complicated variety of reasons. Yeah. But you still are this sex or that sex because this is the tendency of your body with regards to bringing forth the next generation of mankind, which is the whole reason that we have two sexes, in fact. Um, and I think that, yeah, it's a shame that the church still frames things so often. And when I say the church, I obviously don't mean in like the strongest capital C sense. The church herself, her magisterium, is infallible and correct and is not subject to any of the prejudices of our age or of an age 20 years lagging behind or whatever. But in terms of the way that different spokespersons for the church frame these issues, it's still like really unnecessarily essentialist a lot of the time. And it's about quote unquote, reaching out to our gay youth, or it's about trying to, um, you know, uh, uphold heterosexuality by which they ought to mean the family, um, but instead end up meaning the psychological persuasion as the ideal that everyone ought to strive for or something. And it's alienating and also just not especially Catholic. Um, But I think so much of that, I mean, there's a whole variety of reasons that the church is uh, always attempting to uh, how do you do fellow kids and not uh, not doing that very convincingly, Alasti Buscemi. But there's unfortunately a problem of trying to be up to date by a lot of people who have often been left behind by the culture in different ways and yet are still the ones sort of setting the terms of debate on this. I mean, I think of someone, I don't want to go too far down this path, but I think of someone like James Martin who... And I don't think we're going to go there, but here we go. Well, I only bring him up to say the thing about Father James Martin that is so disappointing to me. I mean, there's obviously, you know, orthodoxy issues that could be disappointing to me. But but the thing that's so disappointing is like, what a wasted opportunity. What a lost opportunity to actually call into question the way this has been framed and presented for so long and bring the incredibly consoling truths of the church's tradition to people who are hurting so much right now in the midst of this and feel so alienated and abandoned and whatever. And rather than saying to them, Hey, welcome home. You are not different than anyone else here in any essential way. Welcome to the family. Dysfunctional as she is, she's ours and you're one of us. Rather than saying that, Instead, it's this thing of, no, please continue to identify by this disordered set of desires and continue to, at least without saying this part out loud, continue to do what you want in regard to that. And the church needs to change to make it clear that all of this is just fine. That's just not helpful. Um, first of all, it's, it's not boring. true. But it's also this is my point. It's also so boring. Why would I need to go to church to be told that I can be whatever, do whatever I want to do? I could do, I could go anywhere. Yeah, it. I think it just misses the mark so hard on our generations and on trying to. I mean, to use Pope Francis's language, right? To be the field hospital or to smell yeah. like the sheep or whatever it may be. It smells um, more like bourgeois global elitism. 
There we go. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole, but I will say this, that um, he, for the last couple of years, he's been doing the Pride Mass at St. Francis in Midtown before the parade. And I wrote this once, and I'm like, you're saying Mass, you know, presumably for a bunch of LGBT-identifying people, right, down the street from the Pride Parade. And you're preaching this, again, this very bourgeois, not very Catholic, not even very pagan um, worldview, which, again, is very dull and boring. And, you know, in that church, you have many beautiful statues which speak to, I'm not going to call it a person's ability because I don't want to scandalize people, but, like, you're displaying the body in a way that should speak to people who one feel alienated and outcasted but also have certain affinities for you know bodies of the same sex you have such an opportunity to present them something so much more exciting than the display of bodies that you see at the pride parade why are you taking advantage of this like really exciting opportunity mm-hmm. um, rather you just go with the status quo and like the thing, this is what I'm going to say just about the horseshoe thing again. It's like the benefit of queer theory is that I think it, it is relying on this pre-Stonewall narrative that understands you know, certain actions to be metaphysically charged, like you know, at least in a pagan sense, it has this spiritual charge. And I don't know, like I think about people like Quentin Crisp, who I quote a lot, who like was very aware that he was a deviant, that he wasn't normal. And there's a there's this passage in one of his books where he talks about his encounter with this Catholic nun. And he says that like as, you know, someone who desires people of the same sex, I've always been in pursuit of this great dark man, he calls it, doesn't mean racially. But this this mysterious figure, this elusive real man who is not accessible because Real men don't desire other men. So that he's saying like the whole experience of same-sex desire is rooted in this pursuit of a mystery. Now, if you're actually going to pursue sodomy, like it's this inversion of the mystery, which is ultimately diabolical. But he finds in his friend who's a nun that she's also pursuing this great dark man who is God. So even though, no, like they're mirror opposites of each other, there is this convergence. There is this similar understanding of their desire. And I feel like the fact that so many in the church, whether we're talking about a kind of mainstream left or right discourse, like ultimately when we don't look at uh, queer theory or pre-stonal kind of narratives, we're playing on the turf of these very bourgeois, secular worldviews. Like, and all we can really do is either um, accommodate ourselves to that worldview or we can react to it. But at the end of the day, we're playing their game. Mm-hmm. What we really should be doing is responding to the narrative of homosexuality, of you know, sexual deviancy, that does have something in common. The pagan kind of approach does understand that sodomy has a metaphysical charge. There is something spiritually significant. And as much as yes, it's opposed, there's like we can speak a similar language, we can engage, you know. Yeah, it's the McIntyrean in me again that wants yeah. to say there's sort of two moves at that point that are worth making. One is to attempt to translate our tradition into the terms of their tradition without remainder um, in terms that they'll understand, but that are still adequate to the fullness of truth. And the other, which I think is also really important and maybe more relevant than ever today, is trying to slowly guide people who are very much ordering themselves toward the city of man to guide them toward epistemic crises 
and to get them to the point of realizing that their own tradition raises questions that it is systematically incapable of answering. Um, and that's going to be true in any false philosophy. And the fullness of Catholic truth is always going to have the answer to that. But I think today more, I don't know about more than ever, but today in a really strong way, certainly more than a decade ago or in my childhood, the claims of the culture are really bold and really loud and really totalizing. And they're chewing so many people up and spitting them out that people are longing for somewhere else to be, somewhere else to stand and for a true community to belong to. And that's what we ought to be as the church. Um, maybe if it's okay uh, to wrap this episode with a, a funny story yes. to put a, uh, a little cap on our Father James Martin mm -hmm. aside. Um, so I'm not going to use this priest's name, but this to me just sort of epitomized uh, the ridiculousness of that whole project of trying to accommodate the church to... Um, the immorality of the culture in this regard. I have a friend who is a priest and is not a priest in the Roman Catholic Church, but is a, a priest, and he was wearing his Eastern garb, including a very large um, double cassock, which is this big flowing garment, very traditional looking, may or may not have had a priestly hat on of some variety, I'm not sure and was in Midtown Manhattan when, unfortunately, it was Pride Parade weekend. And he is cutting across, is trying to get through. He's not actually in the parade, but he's up there around it, and it's all around him. And Father James Martin sees him, and Father Martin is not dressed as a priest, and scolds him and tells him, you should not be wearing that here. And these two very over-the-top drag queens see this happen and come up and start screaming at Father James Martin, oh saying, God, this is you should not be saying that to him. That man is a fabulous pope, and he needs to keep wow. being a fabulous pope. And you little bigot, just get out of here and leave him alone. Whoa. And it was the greatest um, sort of inversion, greatest uh, sort of um, just hiding the contradictions, here we are kind of moment. So... My friend may like to exaggerate and elaborate, so if uh, details of that go beyond what factually, ha factually happened, it at least was a nice little snapshot for me of, like, this is where we're at. Like, we can, and I don't want to pick on Father Martin no, too hard. I mean, he's done a lot of good work. Yes, he has, and let's, let's certainly pray for him and be grateful that we get to be members of the same dysfunctional family yes. as him and pray for each other. But in terms of an approach to this complicated set of issues, it just drove home for me that the church has so much more to offer from the fullness of her tradition. And we ought to be doing that for the sake of saving souls at the end of the day. But what that means is for the sake of answering to the real hurt that is inside all of us today. So before we go, I have two, I want two hot takes. Um, <laughs> no, I, because I, we've been talking about this before, I want to hear a thought about Rafalovich and then Freud. What do you say? Um, I say that you need to comment on Rafalovich mm. um, because I have read almost none of them. As I say, pretty much everyone I've read on these topics, I quote in my piece. Um, in terms of Freud, I guess I can say a little more, just that like, look, is there something important and interesting and continually relevant to us in the 21st century about the invention of 
medical psychology. Obviously, there is, but if you've ever taken a psychology class, you know that psychologists today think Freud was wrong about most everything. Um, like this is kind of the starting point of psychology, which is fun, funny. But when you take Psych 101 at college, it's one of the first things you hear is the man who invented this discipline was also a seriously screwed up character and most of what he said is false. Um, and so when it comes to sexual orientation, I just think it's a shame that we've let this guy who was himself sexually perverse in so many ways define for us how we ought to conceive of ourselves, both because of the time that's passed in the interim and how irrelevant that all is today, but also because it's not Freud, but is in fact Christ Jesus who gives the standard of what the human mind actually is and is meant to be. Um, and so this set of categories, yeah, as I said, is one that I think it's really a shame that we bought into so much when we like my psych 101 professor ought to be just calling the ass when we see it and saying Freud got this one wrong. Yeah. I mean, the only things I'll say first about Freud, one of like over time I've come to agree with pretty much everything in your article, but the only pushback I would have is this, that as much as these categories are not ontologically real, I do think psychologically we do need to create space for some categorization because the reality is a lot of people's sexual inclinations, whether they're talking about same sex or other kinds of non-heterosexual, non-procreative, um, are rooted in some kind of psychological causality. And again, Freud was not right about everything, especially because he was pretty perverse and had a pretty pagan worldview. Um, no, I mean, when you talk to most people, like the reality is most of their desires, especially same-sex desires, are shaped by some kind of experience with their parents or of some kind of trauma. And I do think, yeah, like we shouldn't hold on to these categories in a very real way, but sometimes, yeah, there are psychological implications that especially the church pastoral ministers should look at and not, know, shouldn't just brush over. Yeah, I agree with that completely. So things that are not real in themselves can still be real in their effects. Right? Yes, exactly. And so my point was to say, in as much as you think these are describing like ageless absolutes, just essential types of man, you're confused and wrong and we should stop doing this. Um, but yeah, there's no question that today these are very powerful categories of thought. And while I think all else being equal, it would be best to stop using them in our self-understanding, you've got to meet people where they are. Yeah. And if these categories are built into that, then you, you know, have to, I mean, my big thing on this is I think at that point, what you've got to say is we can't generalize very much about this yeah. because the church has always had a place for the reality here for these sorts of mm -hmm. ways in which, um, the tendencies of the individual, um, have causes and have um, kind of larger connections and so forth. The church always had a way to deal with that, but she didn't deal with it in proclaiming about universal psychological types. She dealt with it in the intimacy of spiritual direction and like the confessor manual tradition. You look at that tradition, there's no possible way you could accuse the church of being oblivious to the power of the mind um, and experience and trauma and all these things in shaping the way that we tend and that we act 
in all sorts of ways, not just in the realms of genital sexuality. Yeah. Um, but I think what what would be unhelpful is if the church, rather than taking that um, sort of a man at a time and in an intimate pastoral setting with well-trained priests who know what they're doing, instead tried to generalize and quote-unquote pontificate about this in a way that just gave in too much to the narrative of all of this is one thing and it's real in the strongest sense and is an essential component of you and let's talk about why or something. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, no, I think my point in the piece was to say as in so many ways, modernity is inadequate here um, and we need to draw on our own tradition. What that doesn't mean is that we should pretend like we live in some age in which we don't live. We live in this age, we have this set of problems and this set of experiences and this language in which to grapple with them, but it might be good for us to step back and evaluate that language more critically. I think that's fair, yeah. Um, And yeah, I'll just say this about the Rafalovich point that I think even though some some of your critics have juxtaposed your article with his thought, I do think there's a lot of convergence because basically what this guy is arguing towards the end of the 1800s is that um, there is such a category. He's not he doesn't clearly define it as purely psychological, metaphysical, whatever, um, as sexual inversion, which is basically to refer to people who experience desire for the same sex loosely. Um, but he does believe it's something that is to an extent ingrained for many people, but ultimately that there's a superior expression of it and an inferior one. The superior one would be channeled towards chastity, self-gift, creativity, art, etc. as we see many people who have had that tendency of contribute to arts and culture. And the inferior would be a self-indulgent, carnal one, specifically engaging in sodomy, whatever. Um, so I think like if we loosely use this category, um, it does speak to the fact that one, like there's a prophetic dimension to it that like this person who gives themselves or who offers their desires to God chastely um, is a sign of the fact that all sexual desire is ultimately for the sake of the kingdom. Even people who get married heterosexually and have kids, you're not getting married because that's the normal natural thing. You're doing it to propagate, you know, the glory of Christ on earth and to prepare for the kingdom. So that tension that quote-unquote inverted people live between either an unnatural or supernatural give meaning to the quote-unquote natural vocation of marriage. But also, again, like it speaks to the fact that there is this certain cultural sensibility that a lot of people with same-sex attraction have. So again, loosely using these categories that he talks about, I think is helpful, but of course with a little bit of nuance. You know, I'm not relying too heavily on it. Um, but with that being said, Erwin, thank you very much for coming on. This was a good time. It was great to be here. And I think uh, we might follow this up with another episode looking at how some of these things show up in contemporary media and culture. Indeed. So stay tuned. Stay tuned. Thanks very much, Stephen. Thank you. Thank you.